Good morning to each one. Thank you for that children's lesson, John, and that opening also. And welcome, Myron. I just, you must have just walked in, huh? So, um, if we come out in this beautiful, snow-covered Sunday morning to worship the Lord, yet we know not everything is beautiful as what it looks out there. And even the beauty of the snow has a cruel part of it. It's very cold. It's very in, it can be, well, it causes a lot of work. And um, I think I heard that weather-related crashes are 20 times more likely to die of a weather-related crash than you are of Tornadoes and floods and hurricanes and heat, <laughs> which is actually the highest of those other three categories. So snow, which is so beautiful and is so, it's just real nice, yet there's a negative side to it in reality. And so we live in a world that is both awe-inspiring and beautiful and is also horrendous and horrific and horrible <laughs> mixed together because it's a fallen world. And that gives us opportunities to, for ourselves to both trust the Lord when we go through difficult times and it gives us opportunity to show the Lord's love for others in their difficult times. So, well, this morning, I'd like to continue on in Second Peter, and you can turn there. The last time, we went very rapidly through chapter 2. After we uh, spent months in chapter 1, we went one sermon through chapter 2. And I'd like to do a little bit of re- recapping like I always do, chapter 2. Anybody remember what chapter 2 was about? What was the main theme of chapter 2? False teachers. Peter did a character analysis of some false teachers of his day. And we, maybe I should say I, hopefully we, I'm amazed that Peter didn't seem to treat the false teachers as lightly as we seem to take them today. The spirit of the age today is tolerance or individual freedom, individualistic freedom. And that comes out to, I can think what is right for me and you can think what is right for you. And what basically the spirit of the age means, it's the dominant school of thought that typifies, typifies or influences the culture of a particular period of time. So the spirit of the age is the dominant thinking that influences a culture. 
And today, the dominant thinking is tolerance. And so Peter didn't have a lot of tolerance for those teachers. But now, even as them, it's not on the surface. Things are always not as they seem on the surface. They're not always that way underneath. Back then, the false teachers taught and preached and proclaimed liberty. But in fact, they were in bondage themselves and they were bringing their listeners also into bondage. It says they were the servants of corruption and their message did not lead to freedom at all, as promised, but took the people who had been freed back to destruction. And no wonder Peter was so animated because here you had some people who were freed from corruption. Here come these teachers and they get these people captivated by their message and it comes back and brings them back into destruction. And that's why he talks in such language like a, a dog going back to its vomit. And a sow that was washed going back to its mire. That is why he was so animated. We have to be out here by 12 o'clock. So I'm just trying to figure out whether I should go over everything or not here. So today... When someone holds a line on a truth, he is viewed as narrow-minded, unloving, and unaccepting. And he is personally categorized as a judgmental and undesirable person. And why? Because he doesn't fall into the new spirit of the age standard of tolerance. The new standard acceptance, and open-mindedness. Now, the spirit of the age always affects the church at some level. I, um, I like One song that we sang this morning was such a beauty because it actually was a song, and I, I don't have it together, but what I got out of that song is someone who was so in tune with God that it didn't seem like the spirit of the age was any connection there anymore. And actually, that's what the people of God should be experiencing on a regular basis, that there is such a walking in the spirit that there is not a pulling. But that reality is that it's not the way it is. And so the spirit of the age always impacts the church at some level. And how it impacts the church today is a downgrading of the value of doctrine in the church because doctrine divides. Doctrine divides unnecessarily is sometimes viewed that way. Unity, like tolerance, becomes the new virtue. And so scriptural teachings are sometimes minimized, and in its place is love and acceptance. And that is the spirit of the age reflected in the church. And that spirit is in full swing in the American church. Let's say it that way. Now here we need to acknowledge not everything is the way it should be in the church. 
there are really needs and failures. And there are blind spots. And the church must be challenged to rise up and follow her Lord. But the answer to her problems is not to submit to the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age promises to deliver something, but it will not bring freedom or deliverance. It will actually go to bondage. If you think we're in trouble now in the church, wait till the church accepts the spirit of the age and let that come to fruition and then see whether we are in trouble or not. That will be a bitter harvest. So, Paul, uh, Peter rather, minces no words when he exposes the phonies of his day. Those influential and convincing and likable and persuasive teachers of his time Peter just exposed them. God, Peter said, God will judge those teachers and the people that follow them in the same way that he judged uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the people in Noah's day and the angels that sinned. Those are the three examples he gave. Now this morning I'm going to speak on a a doctrine that the third chapter of Second Peter lends itself to. It's not a controversial doctrine among us. It is, though, in the greater Christian world. If you believe the Bible in the area I'm going to teach about this morning, you are actually a minority in the Christian community, at least in this country. And depending who you say what you believe in this subject, you will be dismissed as unlearned and ignorant and naive. And you will open yourself to some ridicule and scorn. Peter didn't teach on it directly because he didn't face it directly in his day. But as a prophet, it seems God knew it was coming and gave him some hints of what was coming. So if you look at the first part of chapter 3 of Second Peter, what do you think might be a topic out of there? Just to see what you have to say. Creation. creation. You're right on. I'm going to call it special creation. Special creation. Special Six-day creation, that's not a controversy among us, is it? (laughs) But it's not necessarily that far away. The whole of chapter 3 actually is a summary where Peter summarizes the future coming, coming future judgment. And he's warning those that reject him who are rejecting the Lord He is warning them who reject the Lord, and he's encouraging the believers and challenging those who obey the Lord. And as he does that, he makes both mention of the creation and the flood in Noah's day. And he mentions also scoffers, and he mentions people who are willingly ignorant. So let's go through here these first seven verses this morning. Verse 1. 
chapter, verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Peter says, I want to stir up your minds. Not your emotions. <laughs> now, our emotions, our emotions move us. To be sure, they do. I see some smiling faces this morning already. But they are not to be in the driver's seat. What's in the driver's seat? Our minds, our pure minds, that were purified by Christ. We've been given a new mind in Christ. Use it. What should we be mindful of? That, verse 2, that ye be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us apostles of the Lord and Savior. The words spoken by the holy prophets is Old Testament. The whole way back to Genesis, by the way. <laughs> it's, when it talks about the prophets in the Old Testament, it's talking about the whole Old Testament. And then... The commandments of the apostles of the Lord. That's the entire New Testament. So we should be mindful of the words spoken in the Old Testament and also what was being spoken by the apostles here. Be mindful of those words and those commandments. Knowing this first, most importantly, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Scoffers here. And they're going to look at their understanding of history and they say, well, it's always been this way. That means it's always going to be this way. There's actually a uh, scientific term for that called uniformitarianism, which is actually mean the, um, the processes that we see today is the way it's always been. And we'll get a little bit into more of that a little bit later. We don't believe in what God has said happened in the past, and we don't believe there will be any supernatural intervention in the future. That's what some of these scoffers were saying. And then it gives an, um, gives an analysis of them in the next verse. For this they are willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Of course, this is referring to the special creation of God. The paraphrased version of this, and I thought I'd read it, says they did to deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out of the water and surrounded it with water. That gives a little picture. That's creation. That's what God did. And the next verse, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. And this is referring to the worldwide flood, which only Noah and his family and two of each of the dryline animals survived on a big boat known as the Ark. 
And next verse, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So the question this morning that I have, is it important what we believe about Genesis and creation? Does it make any difference in our day-to-day life what we believe about how God made the world? Does it make any difference in how we care for the poor and give money, how we live our lives and how we treat our wives or our children or our neighbors or our our Does it make any difference at all in our day-to-day life what we believe about how the world started? What happened back then? Does it make any difference? Isn't this maybe an area of doctrine that at least you could let it be peripheral and not have to teach on it? Well, we're not surprised, surprised that unbelievers have conjured up an alternative, an alternative creation story or rather evolution story. We're not surprised that the unbelievers do that. That's what unbelievers do. They, they come up with their own ideas so that they don't need to answer to God. So we're not surprised. They come up with an alternative creation story called the Big Bang and evolution, and they call it science. On the Futurism website titled, Three Pieces of Evidence That Prove Evolution is a Fact, this claim is made. Three pieces of evidence that will convince you without a doubt that evolution is a fact. And here's what it says. For over 150 years... Since the time of Charles Darwin, the theory of evolution has been through more scrutiny and rigorous investigation than just about any other scientific claim. And the theory has only been strengthened as more evidence has been accrued. And then the article gives three supposed evidences that prove evolution. Number one is common ancestry. We can see the lineage coming all that proves it. Number two, change in species as evidence of micro to man evolution. And number three, that there are residual similarities in our ancestry. Um, I'll explain that last one a little more. Now, all these are easily explained by the creationist. Evidence of common ancestry can just as easily be explained by a common designer. (laughs) Change within species does not mean change into a completely new or different kind of animal. That has never been observed. And number three, the skin covering your tailbone does not prove that you used to have a tail that you used to climb trees with. That's what the third one means. So those are the three proofs of evolution that's going to convince you. (laughs) Any takers this morning? So we're not surprised, though, that people have come up with this philosophical and scientific way to explain the existence of a universe without the necessity of God creating it. 
the theory of evolution as it's developed in the 1800s finally gave the atheist a rational and a justifiable place to stand. It finally, I mean, before they came up with this theory, you could be an atheist, but, I mean, how do you explain everything? Well, now we have an explanation. So that's what happened. So he has a justifiable and rational place to stand. And stand he did. Evolution has completely permeated the sciences. Biology, geology, astronomy, sociology, psychology, and uh, there'd be more ologies that probably someone could add to that. But these sciences and others are viewed through the lenses of naturalistic evolution. Everything is now explained in an evolutionary framework. And this is true if you go down to Smithsonian museums or basically any museum. And you go to national parks and they describe the, um, they explain the interesting formations wherever you're looking at as in uh, evolutionary terms. It is exclusively taught in every public school in this country. It is the dominant accepted worldview of our day. In fact, what has happened can be called no less than an indoctrination of a society. But that shouldn't be, that shouldn't bother us as Christians, should it? Why? Well, what did I say at the onset? What happened to the church? What happened to the church when the spirit of the age promotes something strongly? What happens to the church? It is often affected by it. It infiltrates the church every time. John MacArthur says of their college, Master's College, which their college is part of a Christian college coalition. There's 105 colleges part of that coalition. And he said that only five of those 105 teach definitively that Genesis Creation's uh, account in Genesis as truth. So that means there are a hundred Christian colleges that compromise on Genesis. That's what I mean by the world infiltrating the church. So they restrict the hundred colleges out of 105 reject a straightforward reading of the Genesis account of creation. Instead, they capitulate to a societal pressure and they accept and or teach some form of evolution. So they deny Genesis to affirm science, so-called. And we might say, well, that's out there. Well, it's not as far out there. Um, There's a teacher at Faith Builders who ascribes to that. He doesn't teach it, but he ascribes to that view. And um, I talked to someone from Buffalo Valley recently that there was a group that left Buffalo Valley. And then very soon a visitor came in and he believed in evolution. That's what I was told by somebody from there. 
And um, then I asked that brother who told me that, well, did the man believe in theistic evolution or progressive evolution or the gap theory? Or, And I got a blank look back. And I realized, oh, yeah, I, I, he, in his mind, you either believe the Genesis account or you believe in naturalistic evolution. Now, we might wish the world were that simple. <laughs> but it's not that simple. So I thought, well, um, I don't know how much youth have faced it or what for pressures you face. But I thought, well, ah, let's just go through. Let's just go find out what Christians of our day are facing in this area. And so I thought it'd be a little bit of education. There are many variations about the origins of this universe and its history. So this morning I want to accomplish two things. I want to explain common theories that Christians use to explain away a straightforward acceptance of Genesis. And then number two, I want to explain some of the problems that arise when Christians do that. So I'll be talking to Christians this morning. So this is what the God says in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Then the narrative continues for six days in which God makes everything, including the first two people. What were the first two people's names? Serena. What were the first two people's names? <laughs> Adam and Eve, right? Okay. It was declared very good. Then God ceased from creating and he rested on the seventh day. Then comes the temptation then comes sin, then comes the fall of man. Eventually, God destroys the whole world through a flood because of a judgment for the wickedness of the people. Then afterwards, when, um, when the people again gathered together against God, he scattered them at the Tower of Babel. Inserted in that narrative are genealogies that give ages and generations, this person was so old when he begat such a person, and so on, and so on, and so on. Adding all of that up, taking the Bible at face value, you will arrive at a position that is designated. This is a... It's a designation that means something specific. Young Earth Creation. Young Earth Creation is a belief that God's word is true as stated and that it means what it says. And this is what it says, that the earth was created recently. That God communicated exactly what he wanted to communicate in Genesis in a way that we can clearly understand it. He created the world in six days, approximately 6,000 years ago. Um, there are some people who would believe that maybe there are certain gaps in those genealogies. But if there's gaps, you only extend it a little bit, not far. <laughs> it's less than 10,000 years. And everything that follows in Genesis, the temptation, sin, flood, tower, babble, is straightforward history. We can read it, 
as history and we can understand it. Now, why would a Christian not believe that is a question that we would ask. Why would someone who says they believe God and they believe the Bible not be a young earth creationist? And it's because of the powerful influence of society and its own creation or evolution narrative. Evolution has such a stranglehold on society. It is proclaimed on those nature shows and television, National Geographic, and whatever whatever format you want to come to, it is everywhere. I was told bluntly by an unbeliever that I drove in a truck with that evolution is a proven fact. <laughs> and he really did believe it. He really did. And um, and it's because and and everything that he talked to me about a proven fact I know he got is simply not from study, but it's what he got off of media, feeding on it. That's where he got it. Criticism of that evolutionary worldview will inevitably turn into criticism and scorn and censoring. Of the critic. If you criticize that worldview, what will come your way is not tolerance. (laughs) It will come criticism. In fact, some of the worst blogs I have ever read, the most filthy and demeaning blogs, were of young earth creationists standing firmly on the truth of the Bible. You stupid, ignorant liar is a very mild expression given to uh, giving as criticism to a young earth. So, it is very unpopular to believe the Bible. Surprise? <laughs> Shouldn't be. So it's unpopular, so alternatives are being pursued by Christians to lessen the cross that Christians need to bear in society, especially in the academic society and the professional world. There are alternatives pursued. You can believe in your God as long as he bows down to modern science. That's what the Christian gets out there. So much for tolerance. Well, if modern science is convinced of one thing, it is this, that the universe and the world are billions of years old. So every alternative explanation of Genesis by the Christians will put billions of years in there. So let's look at some of those alternatives. We, of course, have the myth theory the theistic evolution theory, the progressive evolution theory, the gap theory, um, and day gap theory, which some of those overlap. Here's the myth theory. This view believes that the creation account is only a Jewish myth, a little bit like the other creation myths that were in other cultures during that time. It's a way 
for primitive man to try to understand the environment and try to explain how things happen. And since they didn't have science, this is the best they could do. They came up with this story. But it's really not believed. Uh, really, It's not really meant to be believed. And this is basically the common understanding of the liberals of our day who really don't actually believe the Bible, which we really can't call them Christians at all from my perspective, but they are called Christians by, uh, by some. This view says the Bible is a human book and contains a lot of errors. And so, in this view, the normal contemporary view of evolution is fully accepted, whatever is the dominant view at the time. Now, a subset of this myth theory is called the symbolic narrative, or I actually found out later it's called the hype. Uh, there's another name for it, too. I can't get it together. I have it in my notes down there, but I don't have it. But this is the belief that God inspired Genesis, but never intended that it be taken literally. literally. Instead, these stories are symbolic narratives that communi- communicate divinely inspired truths. As divinely inspired truths, they are not the figment of man's imagination, but they're a result of the Holy Spirit's influence, and so it was written by God. So the stories are not untrue or vaguely reliable or childish, but rather means by which profound truths about the origins of the creation is communicated to mankind. Now, did you change? Did you see the difference in direction? Instead of the literal truth, it's profound truth. Somehow it goes down really deep and gets some really profound truths that are not on the surface. So those profound truths are communicated, but it's not literally true. And so this view also accepts the culture's view of evolution. So that's the myth theory. Then we have the theistic evolution theory. Now, in most forms, this view accepts the dominant view of evolution. It only believes that God did it. God used Evolution. He put the first life in that first primordial stew and created that life. And he set up the environment in which evolution could take place. So um, God steered evolution indirectly as a process of creation. And so later on, as evolution came and gave rise to man, then he gave souls to the to the first people and got them raised them above the animals. Now, so the proponents of these theistic evolutions emphasize the overall message of Genesis, and they assert that the details of the story are not to be made taken literally. What, though, is to be taken literally is the present view of evolution. That you should take literally. Only it would be guided by God. So, now you can be a Christian, and you can be a respected teacher, or professional, or a scientist, and a Christian, and there's no conflict anymore. Not in that realm, there isn't. 
Number three is the progressive creationism, also called the day-age theory. And this theory promotes that the days of creation in Genesis 1 can be explained as vast periods of time. In fact, Dr. Ross believed that day three of creation week lasted for three billion years. <laughs> so they believed the regular story, the Big Bang occurred 13 to 15 billion years ago. And then the days of creation in the Bible were overlapping periods of millions and billions of years. And I'm just going to give some ideas of some things they teach. Over millions of years, God created new species as others continued to get extinct. There was death and bloodshed and disease, and they all existed before Adam and Eve and the fall. They say that man-like creatures that looked and behaved much like us existed before Adam and Eve, but did not have a spirit that was made in the image of God. That's those prehistoric people that they dig up the Nithanderals and some of those other people they dig up would have been pre-Adam and Eve. They didn't, they weren't actually real people. Well, not in the way that we think of today. And the Genesis flood was a local event. Now, this view actually is has, has pretty much traction in the Christian world. You can actually buy homeschool curriculum with this kind of uh, teaching. And um, you can get books and periodicals. And so this is not an uncommon viewpoint. It's highly promoted in some Christian environments. The attractiveness of this view is that it allows you to be still call yourself a creationist, but still gives respect, um, academic respectability in the scientific world by reject, rejecting those six literal days of creation and you maintain billions of years in your belief system. And number four is the gap theory. I don't know how many, you are probably familiar. How many of you are familiar with any of these? How many are familiar with the gap theory? You know what I'm talking about. There's a few, not everybody. Okay, good. Then I'm not just speaking to the choir here. <laughs> what do you do when you believe the world is very old, but you still clearly understand that Genesis is meant to be understood literally? Now what do you do? You enter the gap theory. The gap theory is is that in the it's the belief that in well it's a gap between Genesis chapter one verse one and Genesis chapter one verse two. And let me read that to you. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Millions and millions of years ago, God created the heaven and the earth. Then there was a huge gap. And verse 2, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now, they would use the, uh, the earth was. There's a, you can translate that word was as became. Um, of the hundreds of times that it's used in the Bible, 2% of the time it's used became. So you could technically say it could be used became. 
So the idea is that God created the heaven and the earth, and there was a whole world system back then with plants and animals and I don't know what all, but then Lucifer fell. And Satan rebelled and was thrown to the earth, and the result was Lucifer's flood, which destroyed all plant and animal life on the earth. And that produced the fossil record that we see all over the world, and it produced the coal and oil deposits, you know, that are buried and takes millions of years to form. (laughs) So all that happened. And so the earth became without form and void, is that belief. And darkness... So, this gap theory teaches that the fossils found, like I said, in the Earth's crust are relics of the originally perfect world that God had created and was supposedly destroyed before the six literal days of the creation, or in their case, recreation. Now you think, well, why would someone believe that? But that's actually very widespread. It's taught in many commentaries. Danny Keniston, years ago, promoted a good commentary, Explore the Book. He said, that is a very good commentary, and I got it, and I explored the book. <laughs> and it had this taught this in that one there. The rest of the commentary is very good, but it taught the GAT theory very clearly. So what's common about all these theories? What is common about all of these theories? It is the Christian responding to pressures from the scientific beliefs of the modern era. And the viable question is, shouldn't Christians do that? After all, didn't Christians used to believe the world was flat? And when science showed that, well, that... uh, the world is, is, a, is a sphere. Then Christians change their views. Didn't Christians used to think that uh, the sun went around the world and then they found out later that the world went around the sun? So, as science progresses, shouldn't Christians progress with science and change their views? Yes. If you as an individual believe something and then you realize that what you believed was an error, then you should change your beliefs. Whether you do it as an individual or whether you do it as a group or as a society, you should change your beliefs if you are shown that it's actually error. None of us has everything right. And whole cultures and whole civilizations were in error about a lot of things. And so change is needed at times. So, should we change here? Modern science has proven that evolution is true and the earth is billions of years old. Well, the real issue here is one of authority. Will we believe in an unchanging God and the Bible and what it clearly teaches about how he made the world, or will we believe in the changing, constantly changing views of fallible man? 
I'll give you an example. You ever heard of the Scopes trial? Ever heard of the Scopes trial? A few people? Okay. Trial in 1925 where a biology school teacher, a substitute school teacher taught in a, in a school, a public school in the South. He actually taught that humans descended from apes or the primates, whatever one it was. I don't know the details, which was illegal to do in 1925. You couldn't, you could teach evolution, but you could not teach that you came from a monkey. <laughs> it's a little bit of a, a discrepancy there in logic. But uh, this became one of those test cases to see what they could do. And so this this evolutionary biology teacher was taken to court. And then they got this court and, and they got the uh, the evidence that was given why it is actually true that humans descended from primates. They gave a lot of evidences. Every one of the evidences that they gave that day has since been proven. They have this, that they've proven. They can't prove anything inside. Those evidences have been discarded by the evolutionary community because what they understood as evidence back then, later on they realized was actually not true. And so today the story is completely different, although they just have different evidences. What, what I want to bring out is that Man is constantly changing his view of how creation came into, how the world came into being. What is being promoted today as true will be discarded in the future. What is taught about evolution today will not be what is taught a hundred years from now. But don't worry. They will come up with something new. They always do. It's called a rescuing mechanism. There will something else will be presented as true. There's a lot of evidence that the world is not very, very old. Lots of evidence. One of them is the, uh, the, the evidence, or one of them is the presence of comets that come through our system now and then. You know, uh, we haven't, we don't hear much about comets nowadays anymore because, well, because they're fainter than they used to be. That's because comets actually have a, have a lifespan. A maximum, 100,000 years, but most of them are lifespan is much less. So, but we still have comets coming into our system. So if the universe is extremely old, they should have been all burned up by now. So here comes a rescue mechanism. It is promoted or it is taught now that there's an Oort cloud somewhere out there. You can't actually see it. Our telescopes can't see it. They don't know quite where it is, but it's out there, an Oort cloud, which is named for the man that thought up to the idea. And in this Oort cloud, uh, there's a whole bunch of rocks and things like that there. And every once in a while, one of them gets dislodged, a little bit like an iceberg gets dislodged from Greenland. You know, that ice shelf, and they go over to sea. Finally, it cracks off and becomes an iceberg and floats away. Well, here you have this big cloud and every once in a while, you get one, one of those things dislodged and they get into our system. And so you have new comets being birthed all the time. That's how it's explained. Now, it doesn't matter. You've never seen it. There's no evidence of it. But it has to be there. Otherwise, we wouldn't have comets, right? That's 
sensible. <laughs> the fact is, it's there because they believe that the earth is very old. So there's lots of evidence that the earth is not old, and there's many others like that. But the Oort cloud is taught as scientific fact. <laughs> That's part of the proof. True, true, let me say, true observable science says life never comes from non-life. If you want a proven fact, that is about as close as you can get to a proven fact. Life does not come from non-life. And there is a clear law of nature, a law that all of nature must obey. It's the second law of thermodynamics. And that law says that everything that is organized gets more disorganized as time goes on. A little bit like your son's bedroom. Everything, every ordered thing becomes more chaotic and disorderly with time. So everything runs down, everything falls apart. But evolution says that things get more organized and get better over time. An impossibility with the laws that we understand. In fact, they have to become vastly more orderly and vastly more organized over vast amounts of periods of time. Exactly opposite of science, true science. So evolutionists don't actually believe true science. Not in those areas, they don't. And they need to continually change their beliefs as earlier ones are shown to be false. But God doesn't need to change his word because his word is truth in every sense of the word. He knows what he did and he told us what he did and he doesn't need to change it either. God said he created it, and he's able to do that, and it's called special creation. So we have no problem with life. We can explain life. God did it. We can also explain the second law of thermodynamics. God made a perfect world, and it's been running downhill since. That's What, what you believe about creation is actually in line with science. And that's because of sin. And Hebrews, I have a few verses here. Hebrews 1, verses 10 and 12. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hand. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture, thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. You know what you see in there? You see the second law of thermodynamics right in that verse. Now, the the Bible is not a scientific textbook. But where it touches on science, it is accurate. Herbert Spencer was a 19th century scientist. And he discovered that all reality can fit in five categories. All reality that exists 
anywhere can fit in five categories. Talking about physical reality. It's time. Well, maybe that's not physical. <laughs> time. Force. Action. Space. And matter. All realities fit in those five categories. Time. Force. Action. Space. And matter. And it's a logical sequence. Now let's listen to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, there you have time. God, there you have force. Created, there you have action. The heaven, there's space. And the earth, you have matter. You have everything that fits in all reality in the first verse in the Bible. And God doesn't need to change that. It is not necessary for us to bow the knee to modern science in evolutionary science. To be sure, we may be ridiculed and we may be dismissed as uneducated like a flat earther would be dismissed as uneducated and naive. But take that as an honor. The early apostles took persecution with honor. Nothing to be ashamed of. Special creation. God made everything in six days. And what did he do on the seventh day? Genesis 2, 2. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. He rested from all his work, which he had made. So he did two things on the seventh day. He ended all his work. Then he rested. And that's actually significant. God is no longer in the creating business. What for business is God in now? He's in the sustaining business. They want to call business as a frame of reference. In, when science studies the world we live in today, they are studying the sustaining power of God. That's what they're studying. They're not studying the creative power of God. God did it in six days, and then he stopped creating. That's not scientific. That first week was not a scientific week. Science cannot study that. Science will never duplicate that. Science will never understand that. At the end of day six... That's when science only began. <laughs> only then could you study God's world the way he made it. And people had done amazing things in discovering the laws that sustain this universe. And they have done amazing things with the things they discovered. That's why we're here in this building with the heat on, sitting on these chairs made with those materials and the clothing you have and Everything, we're just completely surrounded with 
mankind has understood the science, the world he lives in, and has developed it. And it's really amazing. But it's the God who made it who is truly amazing. True science bows its knee to the creator. Just a couple more points as we close up. If we doubt Genesis, if we say Genesis is not true as written, when do we begin to believe God, as a Christian, that is? Well, we say, well, God didn't make everything in six days. Okay, so you don't, so now we're going to put away the first two chapters of Genesis. We're going to lay that aside. Well, we're not sure if actually there was a true Adam and Eve. That might have been a mythological figure. We're not sure. So we're going to put them aside. Well, we're not sure about, we don't think there was a worldwide flood either, even though the Bible clearly says a worldwide flood. So we're going to put that aside. We're not sure about the Tower of Babel, that whole thing either, and languages and that kind of story either, so we're going to put that aside. So, at chapter 12, now we come to Abraham. Now, are we going to start believing it? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense at all. Maybe there wasn't an Abraham. Maybe there wasn't a Christ. And that's what happens. That's actually the slippery slope. Back to those scoffers. Those scoffers didn't believe there was a coming judgment. But what else did they not believe? They didn't believe God in the flood or the creation. And there you see that progression. And eventually you come to scoffers. <clears throat> Once this belief in one area is accepted, the door is open to much more especially in the next generation, and it happens all the time. Compromise in one area weakens us in other areas. And the best way I know what's happening nowadays with, this, with the homosexual movement is that in the, in the greater Christian world, compromise in marriage puts them at a great disadvantage to speak in that area as well. Okay, Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7. But the heavens and earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store. By the same word of God are kept in store. They are preserved, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, just as we believe that God made the original world, so we believe what God tells us when he tells us what's going to come next, what's going to come in the future. There is going to be a judgment coming. There's going to be a judgment of fire on this world. And just, and I'd like to have a few more verses that are a little more positive than this. And this is just down to, down to chapter and verses 13 and 14. Of the same chapter. Nevertheless, we, we Christians, we Christians who believe God according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. But it will take him, I'm sorry to tell you, it will take him 
billions of years to do it. Do you believe God can do it all at once? Do you believe he did it? Now, he didn't do it all at once. He did it in six days like he told us. And he did that on purpose because he wanted us to have a week. Wherefore, beloved, verse 14, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent. Be diligent. There's that sweaty word that we looked at in chapter 1. Be diligent is a very, very sweaty word. Hard work word. Be diligent that ye may be found in him, in peace, without spot, and blameless. And part of that includes what we heard this morning in children's lesson, what we heard this morning in the uh, opening, and believing Genesis is part of that. (laughs) as God's word. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is the beginning of the new creation. When he came on the earth, it was the beginning of a new race of people, and he's still working and working amongst us and in the world and so on. So, Special creation. Science needs to bow its knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not need to bow the knee to science. So if you are able to, let's kneel for a word of prayer. Lord, as we look into your word, and as your word is truth, we bow our hearts, we bow our knees, we bow our minds, we bow everything that we have in ourselves, our emotions. We bow ourselves down to your word and to you, which is behind your word. That you are the God of truth and you have told us, you have told us what you want us to know. Thank you, Lord, for providing a way. Back there in the garden when there was a tremendous fall, the catastrophic fall of mankind, which brought the world in a curse and in turmoil and separation and estrangement from you and everything else, Lord, that it brought, that you actually then came back then with a sacrifice, but ultimately with your own personal sacrifice there on Calvary, there on the tree. And, Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, as we go about our world today, as we look, as we interact with others, as we interact with each other, teach us, Lord, as you, as you told us, as Peter taught us there in the end, to uh, be diligent and to keep ourselves and to prepare ourselves for that great and glorious day when you will both come back for your own and when you also judge the world. Help us, Lord, to have an impact in this world in the most possible way that we can and being true to you in that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.